Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's late May 2020, and the news isn't really very good generally. There's more death, more unemployment, more business closures, particularly small businesses, more uncertainty, and more and more finger-pointing and gridlock in Washington, D.C. Seems like in some ways... Uh, there is indeed, or there may well be, a, a great depression on the horizon. The recession, a deep recession, is inevitable. The challenge now is how we avoid the great depression. Uh, what do we need to do to avoid this catastrophe? According to uh, Derek Thompson, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of, of Hitmakers, uh, there's a bill to avoid the Great Depression. It's going to take $10 trillion. Derek, uh, $10 trillion, is that it? Is that all we need to spend to avoid the Great Depression? It seems a relatively small bill for, for, to, to, to avoid this massive catastrophe. Well, that's, I think, the right way to think about it. Um, you know, not to, get, not to begin with uh, existentialism, but there's really no such thing as a big number. There are just numbers that are big in context. Um, One million sounds like a big number. Um, But if I told you that the GDP of the US fell to $1 million, you would think that's a pittance, it should be 22 trillion. Um, I could say, you know, a billion sounds like a big number, but there are way more than a billion particles on earth. So 10 trillion, is it a big number? Yes, it sounds like a big number. But when you stack it up against what the United States is facing, which is a decade of a Great Depression, if we don't respond to this economic calamity in a smart and urgent way, it's a good investment. The US economy is $22 trillion over the course of a decade, 10 years, given a certain amount of annual GDP GDP growth that you'd like to see, you're talking about $250 trillion, $300 trillion of economic activity out of all of that money, ten trillion just isn't that much. Um, you know, it's it's one thirtieth. It's it's three percent. And so, what I'm suggesting here uh, is going to sound really alarming if people think I'm I'm saying we need to spend tr- ten trillion dollars in one month. That's not what I'm what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to be prepared for an investment in the U.S. economy over the next few years that is going to cost maybe up to ten trillion dollars. Well, if it's not so much, why don't we spend a hundred trillion? <laughs> well, at some point, uh, money uh, matters uh, and numbers matter. Um, so the problem with spending infinite amounts of money is uh, that you might get inflation, that you might need to raise taxes, that you might uh, create a debt burden uh, that punishes Americans more than they are already being punished. Um, so you want to find a number that makes sense, that is doable, and that doesn't treat money as mere monopoly money. Um, I think the fact that the U.S. controls its own currency um, and is dealing with a global investment community right now uh, that trusts it to pay back its loans, which means that its interest rates are low, means that we can run pretty 
high deficits in the next few years, not deficits uh, worth five times the U.S. economy, which would be uh, $100 trillion, um, but maybe deficits uh, that are something like $3 trillion per year, um, as, as long as what we're facing is the possibility of a Great Depression. And then once you add up, you know, three, four, five years of trillion dollar deficits, you are very much talking about an investment in the U.S. economy that is worth about $10 trillion. So um, as you say in, in your piece in The Atlantic about this $10 trillion uh, bill to avoid the Great Depression, America is a $22 trillion economy. So what we're, doing, what we're talking about is, is a, a little under 50% of, of, of the annual economy. In your Atlantic piece, you break stuff down. Um, so for, begin to break it down for me, Derek. Where does this money go? How do we spend the $10 trillion to avoid the Great Depression? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to talk about what I want the next bill that Congress passes to be. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk about how, how much that bill is going to cost. And then I'll talk about where the rest of the, of the $10 trillion is going to go. Um, so we've already spent about $3 trillion uh, in the CARES Act, uh, in various stimulus and economic relief packages that were passed in March. We've already spent about uh, $3 trillion, uh, but we need to spend more. First, we need to help families. Uh, you're going to see you know, unemployment right now is screaming past 20%. Uh, we've already mailed checks to tens of millions of families, and we've bumped up unemployment insurance. Um, but that beefed up unemployment insurance is going to run out uh, in July. And we have to re-up it because we're not going to go back to 5% unemployment at the end of July. Uh, so we want to extend unemployment insurance and we want to uh, make sure that families uh, have enough money to meet rent uh, and be able to afford food. Uh, the total of that monetary intervention is going to come out to about $1.2 trillion. That's about half of uh, the total cost of the last bill uh, that we passed in the CARES Act. Second, uh, we're going to have to take care of businesses. There's a lot of small businesses whose failure in the next few months uh, could be catastrophic for the U.S., not only because it totally changes the character of American streets, but also because small businesses uh, are responsible for a lot of job creation, responsible for a lot of employment. Um, in order to protect American small businesses, we're probably going to have to spend something like another half trillion dollars, 500 or 600 billion dollars to extend uh, what has previously been called PPP or the Payroll Protection Program which is a loan forgiveness program for small companies to help them hold their breath during this pandemic. So we've, we've covered families, we've covered businesses. What else is there? Well, there's states and local governments. Yeah, so, so go into that. And then uh, I want you to talk about the, um, the Pelosi proposal, because I want to know how much your argument pretty much echoes what she's been arguing. Sure. Uh, I, can, I can just say that very quickly. Um, my my proposal, uh, which I uh, talked about with people who are on the Hill, um, is very similar to the, to the Pelosi proposal um, in terms of its uh, vague outlines. Um, I have a slightly different design for the way that I'd like to uh, help companies, um, and I have slightly different measures uh, for, for families as well. But basically, I'm talking about the same amount of money and the same general breakdown, which is a $3 trillion plan, some of which helps families, some of which helps businesses, some of which helps state and local governments. And then a certain piece of that, a couple hundred billion dollars, is carved out for public health specifically. Um, you know, the, I think our, our public health uh, uh, sort of program across the country uh, could use more money for mass testing, more money for contact tracing, more money for dedicated 
quarantine facilities and the mass production of masks, um, uh, bailouts for rural hospitals, all of that together is going to cost about $200 billion. Uh, and when you add this all up, the, the, the help necessary for families, for businesses, for state and local governments, and uh, for, for hospitals and the public health care system, you come out to a bill that's about two and a half to $3 trillion. Um, and that would mean that the U.S. Uh, in 2020 would pass legislation uh, that amounts to $5 trillion, about 5 to $6 trillion worth of economic intervention to be spent uh, over the next uh, year and a half. So, uh, so you think that we need to basically throw about another $2.5 trillion, $3 trillion at the crisis over the next three months, uh, over the next six months, um, so that that, as you say, that 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 adds up overall to about six trillion. Uh, what do we do with the other four trillion? So the other four trillion, I would put uh, in a in a in a imagine it in a kind of lockbox or a kind of uh, ready to be sprung box um, called automatic stabilizers. And my thinking there goes something like this: Every single time we have an economic calamity in this country. There is a fierce political debate between Republicans and Democrats about how to help people in the next few weeks. And I would like to find a way to bypass that gunky political process. And the way to bypass it is essentially to automate the process of helping the economy. Imagine that there were a law that said every single time unemployment is over 20%, we spend this amount of money. And if unemployment is over 10%, we spend this amount of money on, say, uh, checks to families or unemployment insurance. And we continue to spend that money until unemployment falls beneath some trigger level, say 7%, 6%, or 5%, at which point we stop spending the money. This is, this is called an automatic stabilizer process. It's essentially like putting stimulus or economic relief on autopilot so that we don't have to have this political discussion, this political tug of war over every single dollar when the economy is in a sort of slowly recovering crisis. Um, and so within that bucket of automatic stabilizers, I'm essentially saying we're going to be dealing with this 2020 pandemic in 2021 and maybe even in 2022 and thereafter. Let's be prepared to spend trillions of dollars more on for the unemployed, for state and local governments, for businesses that are near failure, and for the public health care system. And if this is going to cost five to six trillion dollars in 2020 and early 2021, let's be prepared for that to also cost about five trillion dollars over the next, say, four or five years. What's the biggest risk in this $10 trillion plan of yours? I'm glad you asked because I do think that sometimes people, you know, it's very cheap for me to just say the word $10 trillion, but I don't have to, you know, pay any uh, recrimination for that. Uh, it would be false to claim that there's no risk to the government spending any amount of money over any period of time. There are risks, but I do think that most of those risks are knowable. So I'll name three here. The first risk is inflation. The risk that there's just too much money in the economy, it's chasing too few goods, and so prices start skyrocketing for everything, and the U.S. has to uh, uh, pay a large debt service uh, on on the money that it's printing, um, or or the money that it's borrowing. Um, uh, and I, I and just to, to just to interrupt here, Derek, that is the traditional way that governments have paid off debt uh, by, if not encouraging 
inflation, certainly turning a blind eye to it because it makes it much more affordable to pay off, right? It's a fantastic point. That's right. Um, but if you look at the data right now, we're not dealing with anything like an inflation crisis. We are dealing with the opposite, the risk of deflation. Uh, I believe it was last week that the Labor Department reported that one measure of inflation, which is called core inflation, and core inflation is basically the price of uh, lots of everyday goods that doesn't include energy and other more volatile indices like that, it suffered its lowest drop in the history of the statistic. So what I say in the piece is that, look, inflation hawks might be right about a problem the U.S. economy is going to face in 2023, 2024 of rising prices. But right now we're facing the exact opposite problem. And you do not let a drought destroy your crops because you're afraid about the possibility of some future flood. So inflation, yes, it exists. No, we haven't really seen it in the U.S. in the last 20 years. And I don't think that we should risk exacerbating a Great Depression uh, by not taking action because of some fear of a future crisis that isn't here right yet. The other two problems that people talk about in terms of spending all this money so fast is uh, you know, the fact that it's just too much debt for the U.S. Uh, to, uh, to take on. Um, again, I'm not that concerned about it because the U.S. controls its own currency. We can essentially borrow money for free because uh, interest rates, uh, both long-term and short-term, are so low. And so we should take advantage uh, of this pocket of opportunity. And then finally, I think that some people worry that if, and this is related to the inflation fear, that higher debts today mean higher taxes tomorrow. And again, what I would say to that is, is really similar to what, the way that I would answer the inflation fear, which is that the, incon the possible inconvenience of higher taxes in 2025 shouldn't outweigh the economic emergency of a Great Depression starting in 2020 and extending its dark shadow over the rest of the decade, the same way that the Great Depression you know, colored the entire 1930s. Um, so, so I guess those are the three worries. You have inflation, you have uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of a, a debt overload, and you have the possibility of higher taxes. But I don't think any of those worries um, outweigh uh, the severity of the current economic crisis. Some people will be listening to you, Derek, particularly those on the, the left of the Democratic Party, progressives, uh, supporters of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who will say, yeah, 10 trillion, and, and what's he really doing? He's just shoring up the old system. There's nothing in your proposal to pay for college, for kids. There's nothing in your proposal to essentially nationalize the healthcare system. Uh, might it be said that your, your scheme is a little conservative? So it's a, such a great question. I mean, I'm so glad that you asked it. Um, I'm going to... The, the, the truth is, um, I don't really know if this is the time to push for something like a debt jubilee on student debt or the full nationalization of healthcare. Um, I think I could be convinced of a couple different positions. So I, I, I want to be clear that this is an answer of uncertainty and ambivalence rather than uh, the people making that argument from the left are wrong. On the one hand, I agree morally and substantively with a lot of these arguments that the process of adulting in the United States has been uh, severely broken, that young people have to take on way too much student debt, uh, and we need to find ways to make college affordable. I think the U.S. healthcare system is a shambles. It's a shambles that has been illuminated by this catastrophe, and I would love to have a universal healthcare system uh, replace the, the patchwork 
uh, that, that lets tens of millions of people go unemployed every single year that we currently have. I, I would love all of that. Here's my dilemma. What we're dealing with right now is not an emergency that we have the luxury of debating for six months in order to fix. It's an emergency that if we don't, ex- where if we don't extend unemployment insurance and we don't extend checks to tens of millions of American families, people might starve in August. People might starve in three months. There is no world I can imagine where a Democratic Congress will convince a Republican Senate and a Republican president to usher in a project of Denmarkification, right, of essentially turning the United States into a social democratic uh, welfare state in the next six months. It's just not going to happen. So I'm concerned about holding economic emergency measures hostage while we work on a utopian project of fixing the United States for the next 20 years. I am down with so many of the ends that you just talked about, the universalization of healthcare, certainly, and, and the cheapening of or, or, or uh, discounts for, for college and, and uh, debt relief. I just don't see a plausible pathway to getting Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump on board, and we don't have the luxury of waiting. You talked, Eric, about people starving in, in, in August, um, and, and I, I agree with you, particularly given the political dysfunctionality that I mentioned at the beginning of this show. Um, Trump's talking now about ending unemployment at the end of July. McConnell refuses to even discuss Pelosi's proposal. How close are we to the catastrophe because of political gridlock, because of the profound dysfunctionality of our system, and of course, because of the fact that we seem to have a a psychotic president? <laughs> I, it, it's it's a question that unfortunately, like your last fantastic question, I, I can't fully answer. Um, I I cannot predict what fresh hell greets us from the White House in the next few weeks, next few months. I would say this, um, you know, among sort of economic journalists over the last ten years, there, there's been a kind of morbid joke, I suppose you could say, a bit of gallows humor, that bad news is great news, and that means when there's a really, really bad economic print, a terrible economic report that just shows that the economy is you know, suddenly facing a terrible uh, uh, threat, it tends to be good news in that it forces Congress and the Fed to respond, that the news is so obviously terrible that Congress and the Federal Reserve have no choice but to act in response to it. The reason that the pandemic is more likely, I think, to galvanize a response, even from a Republican Senate and a White House um, that is you know, fairly conservative, is that it's just so obvious what happens if we don't extend unemployment insurance. It's so obvious what happens if we don't extend these or, or uh, uh, file more checks uh, worth $1,200 or worth some amount of money to more American families. It's obvious what happens to America's small business if we don't extend relief to them in some other tranche of money. What you're going to see is a Great Depression. What you're going to see is starvation. And it's an election year. And I would just hope that Republicans in power would not want to create another 1932 Herbert Hoover situation 
where their economic failures are so manifest that they cause a democratic sweep. Now, I think you could still see a democratic sweep, but I'm just talking about the psychology of the Republicans in power. And so because the pandemic is so obvious and its economic ruin is so obvious um, and its social devastation is so obvious, I think those could all serve to galvanize future bills in the next few weeks and months um, that will extend a lot of the measures that were inaugurated in uh, that CARES package passed uh, just a few weeks ago. Well, I hope you're right, Derek. What uh, If there are... Um... Republican politicians or perhaps even Democratic politicians listening or decision makers in economic or political or cultural terms, what, what should they be reading to get a kind of perspective, the kind of perspective that, that you have on this that can take a step back and understand really what's at stake here? I would hope that people are taking an interdisciplinary approach. Um, I trust the public health experts. I trust the scientists. I trust the epidemiologists. Um, and this is first and foremost, without question, a public health emergency. But it's also an economic emergency. And so I'm also trying to read small business owners and economists who double as small business owners to learn not only you know what steps should we take in order to not get sick, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, avoiding large gatherings in indoor unventilated spaces, all very, very important. Um, but I also am, am trying to read broadly among economists who are thinking creatively about how to avoid uh, an economic calamity on top of a, of a, a public health disaster. Um, one way to do that is to expand one's horizon uh, beyond American experts. Um, this is a global event. It, it might be truly one of the only, maybe in some ways I think it's kind of the, the first truly global event. Uh, it, this is something that is happening to billions of people around the world at the exact same time. You have maybe for the first time in, in decades and maybe in human history, um, billions of people around the world can agree what the most important story in the world is. And that means it's important, I think, to read, you know, what is Germany doing? What is South Korea doing? What's Taiwan and Hong Kong doing? How are they all uh, mitigating uh, and containing the, the, the epidemiological risk while also responding in terms of economic strategy? Um, th that, so I think reading broadly, both American experts and foreign experts, both in public health and in economics, that's, that's sort of how I, I uh, construct my positions. And then finally, there's sort of a patina of humility that covers all of it. Um, I know that my opinions about this are going to change um, as I as I read more, and so I I, I try to uh, you know take strong positions, but also uh, I'm prepared to abandon them when the evidence turns against my hypotheses. Finally, Derek, a couple of book suggestions on this as a as a way of uh, of of, uh, of of taking our minds on and off the crisis, of making us more or less miserable as we're all stuck inside. What are you reading <laughs> at the moment? Um, what am I reading at the moment? Uh, well, I just gave you a long uh, discussion about uh, uh, Keynesian economics. Uh, there is a new biography of uh, Keynes uh, called The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter uh, at, uh, at the Huffington Post, uh, which I've just dipped into, and it seems like an absolutely fantastic biography. Yeah, um, and just to uh, jump in here, uh, I'm actually going to be interviewing Zach um, later today, so I'm excited about <laughs> that. Sensational. Too. Well, please tell him hello from Derek. Um, I also, a book that I love that I think sort of teaches us a lot about uh, the echoes of history is The Vertigo Years, uh, which is a history mm. of Europe between 1900 and 1910, uh, which just 
uh, goes to show, I think, uh, in a way that I am endlessly fascinated by how much the modern world was invented in the 30-year period between 1880 and 1910, and how much we can learn from that period um, about both uh, optimism uh, and, uh, and, and both about technological optimism, the ability of, of individuals to, to build new things, um, and also this, this sense of, of progress. There was so much about those years that looking backward is so terribly morally backward. Um, that is also an excellent book. Uh, author of the Vertigo Years, the Viennese uh, historian, right? It is uh, Philip Blum is his name. Yeah, that's a great um, book too. I agree. Yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely sensational. Um, and then finally, uh, I'm reading uh, a little bit of fiction as well. Um, Ted Chang, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, Stories of Your Life, uh, the short story writer who writes about who combines sort of science fiction and actual science um and humanity in a really brilliant way uh his uh the 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 story that that book is based on story of your life uh became a movie called arrival uh, which is a sensational movie um and i've really enjoyed uh, uh reading that as well you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.